Good evening, everyone. So, shall we pray to start? Feels like a good way to start a, a sermon in church. So, Lord, thank you that we can gather here tonight safe in the knowledge that we have a Father who loves us and cares for us. And I pray that some of what I will say will have your love breathed on it and will resonate with everyone here tonight and those watching online. Amen. Amen. So to begin with, I just want to say that it is such a massive honor and blessing to be able to speak to you tonight. Uh, So tonight we are carrying on with that series, You've Heard It Said, and I'm so excited to, to jump into it. Uh, and I'm, but before, we have kind of that baptism after, and I just want to say that that moment is going to be life-changing for you guys, so get excited for that. So without further ado, shall we jump in? We've watched the video. Let's jump in with this kind of unpacking that passage. So our passage, that Matthew 6, verses 1 to 4, which, thank you, Jenny, for reading it so beautifully, is part of the passage called the Sermon on the Mount. And before we get really into the kind of nitty-gritty of, uh, of unpacking the truth that I think is revealed in it, I want to just share a small part of the context behind the Sermon on the Mount to help set the scene. And, you know, this has been done before, you know, numerous times, but I just think if you've missed any of it, this will really help with what we're about to say. So why is the Sermon on the Mount important? Why have we spent months and months unpacking different parts from it? Well, I think it has a lot to do with the title that Jesus is called more than 45 times in the Gospels. In fact, it's the second most used title Jesus is given behind Lord. And that title is Rabbi or Teacher. And this word Rabbi is important because it gives us, as followers of Jesus, our posture for how we get to interact with Jesus and his teachings. It gives us our posture because once we recognize that Jesus is our teacher, we then recognize that we are to be disciples of his words. And this posture had a unique name in Jewish culture, which, if you'll indulge me whilst I nerd out a little bit, that word was Talmidim. I think I'm doing it justice. I don't speak fluent ancient Jewish uh, language, but I think it's Talmidim. And that meant apprentice of the rabbi. So what does apprentice to the rabbi mean, and how does it apply here? Well, there were three stages to Jewish education, and I'm not going to get into all of them, and if you really want to, John Mark Comer does a fantastic job of that. But that, but, uh, the Talmudim is the final and the highest stage and it required the most effort, and it was the most difficult to reach. But if you managed to do it, it would change your life forever. Because you see, a Talmidim had three goals with their kind of life and their journey. So their first goal was to be with your rabbi. And this meant literally 24 hours a day. Not a portion of the day, like my pupils see me in my day job, I'm a teacher. Uh, not like that. And I would hate to have my students with me all day. But Every single moment of the day, you're there with your rabbi to soak up all of the goodness and the holiness that they had to offer. So that's goal one, is be with your rabbi. Goal two is to become like your rabbi. Now, becoming like your rabbi didn't mean be a unique version of your rabbi. And I know this kind of sounds a bit strange to our Western sensibilities of uniqueness, and no one can take that away from me, but in this context, Becoming like your rabbi meant literally a carbon copy of your rabbi. So that was the second goal. And the third goal is finally do what your rabbi did. 
And ultimately, this wasn't just about resemblance of the rabbi in some abstract identity type way. It was about doing as you saw your rabbi do. Think of those old bracelets that said, what would Jesus do? It was kind of that idea. So all that to say, the reason it's so important that we recognize our posture when viewing Jesus is because the Sermon on the Mount is kind of the crescendo of Jesus' spoken, preached life. It's where us Talmidim get to see the beauty of the Christian life laid out before us and then told how we are to live in the kingdom of God. Because ultimately, the Sermon on the Mount is our rabbi telling us how we are to live in the kingdom of the Heavenly Father. So, we now have the context for the Sermon on the Mount cemented in our minds as a place where we come to learn from our master, we can really dive into this passage. And so the first thing that I want to draw out from the text specifically is in that all-important verse, verse 3, where it says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And what I want you to notice here first is that Jesus says when, when you give to the needy. He doesn't say if. If you feel like you have the financial security, if you feel like you're up to it, no. He says when you give to the needy. And therefore, what this says to me is that there is an expectation as a follower of Jesus that I have to give to the poor. There is no permission not to give to the poor and the needy. As a follower of Jesus, my, my auto start, my default setting is one of generosity and giving. And if I can't do that, well, I haven't truly become a Talmudim. I'm not truly an apprentice to the master because his words haven't shaped and transformed my thinking. But now that's quite harsh. And I want to be honest with you right now. I don't find this easy. You know, I don't always want to give. I don't always want to be generous. That's not always my default setting, particularly financially. However, my heart has got to be shaped by Jesus. And what I've realized is the more time I spend with him, the easier that becomes and the more I want to change, the more I want my heart to be shaped to follow what he wants me to do. So, we now have the knowledge that we have to give. We'll kind of park that. We've got that there. We know we have to give. Amazingly and helpfully, Jesus then explains how to give. So in verse 2, Jesus says, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. And then he goes on to say in verse 3, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So the message that Jesus was so helpfully and categorically declaring is that you have to give, but when you give, don't do it for your own kudos. Don't do it so your friends think, wow, look how amazing she or he is. Now, another little bit of context. I love context. Another little bit. There might be two interpretations for what Jesus meant by not announcing your giving with trumpets. So the first one is that in first century Judaism, trumpets would be blown so all of the rich Jewish people knew it was time to give to the needy. And they'd rock up with their gold coins. They'd, all of the needy people were lining up. They'd rock up and they'll throw their coins in out of this obligation to give to charity. And so everyone sees, right, they are holy. They're, they're giving away to the needy. 
The second possible interpretation is that the giving bowls were shaped in the form of a trumpet. So if you just picture a trumpet, there is such a way that you could toss the money in that would make it rattle and be really loud. And so that, of course, makes you look like you're giving loads. And even if you were, you made sure that people in the back, old Jimmy in the back, knew, oh, that Nathan, isn't he righteous? He's giving loads today. But either way, the message is this isn't how Jesus wants us to give. And what I think Jesus is really speaking to here is a heart of insecurity. It's the posture of a person who needs to be recognized for what they give because in reality, they don't have the heart of a giver and they're worried that if they don't give, they won't receive the love of the Father. So instead, they give in a way that makes sure they have the approval of man. But no, we can't give like this. Jesus speaks without deviation and emphatically that we must give silently and in private. And so there's the story about John Wesley, who was this, if you don't know who John Wesley is, I'm sure most of you do, he kind of started the Methodist movement. He was an amazing Christian guy. Uh, and I think this story kind of really helps this giving come to life for me. So the story goes that Wesley, after purchasing some pictures for his room, noticed one cold winter day that one of the chambermaids had nothing to protect her except her thin linen gown. And when he reached into his pocket to give her some money to buy a coat, he found he had too little left. And immediately, the thought struck him of his hypocrisy and that the Lord wasn't pleased with the way he had spent his money. And so from that day, in 1731, Wesley determined to maintain his standard of living at the same level and give away everything above that threshold. And at that time, with earnings of 30 pounds, and living expenses at 28 pounds, he gave away two pounds. But then when his earnings increased to 60 pounds, he gave away 32. And then when they increased to 120 pounds, he carried on living at 28 pounds, and he gave away 92 pounds. And Wesley became known for his saying, what should rise is not the Christian standard of living, but their standard of giving. That's beautiful. What should rise is the Christian standard of, no, what shouldn't rise, is the Christian standard of living, but their standard of giving. And what's even more incredible, this is kind of separate to the story, but as I was researching, Wesley made over £100,000 from book sales in his lifetime, whilst he was still alive, which in today's money is about £10 million. This is the level we're talking about. But he died penniless because he had given so much away. Yet never would you have known about his generosity because he didn't preach about it. He didn't come to the front and say, look how righteous I am. I give away so much money. No, it's only later in life when scholars have studied his life and his work that they realized the extent of his generosity. And now I love this story because it gives us a blueprint for how we can go about a generous life without letting everyone know we are. Wesley never struggled he lived on 28 pounds a year, which was by no means luxury, but it also wasn't nothing. But yet his actual wealth meant he could have lived this extravagant, incredible life. However, he didn't. He gave in secret, and he gave generously. 
And there's a quote by the Scottish theologian A.B. Bruce, which puts this best, which is, show when you are tempted to hide, and hide when you are tempted to show. So I just repeat that. Show when you are tempted to hide, and hide when you are tempted to show. So, we've said that it is important to give, and we've said how we should give. But I think the central question is why should we give? Why, as followers of Jesus, should we take heed of his message and live like John Wesley? The why is so central because for all the will in the world and the thinking it sounds good, until we have a changed heart, a heart that was moved like Wesley's was, we are always going to live in the same way and we are always going to give in the same way. So what I'm hopefully going to unpack in the final part of this preach will provide some answer to the why it's important to give and why your heart's got to be changed. But before I do that, I think I have to address the elephant in the room, the cost of living crisis. All we see when we load up our phones, switch on the TV, or if you're over a certain age, pick up those wonderful things called newspapers, is a constant and consistent battering with the knowledge that people are struggling more financially now than certainly they have in my lifetime, but probably for most of yours as well. And in a room with this many people, it is almost guaranteed that some of us will be feeling this extremely acutely right now. So how on earth do you come and talk about giving into this economic climate where everyone is feeling the pinch? Thanks, Simon, for that. <laughs> well, I think there's two reasons why we, as Christians, have to give even in, or especially because of this current climate. First, and by no means least, is that your giving, however much you can afford to give, will be the most appreciated it's ever been. When we see those new blasts about another sector of society struggling or another demographic fighting to keep afloat, we get to be a part of the, solu of the solution through our unbelievable generosity. When society screams at us, look after your own pocket first, we get to live a countercultural life that responds, no, I choose to give and trust. And so you know that your giving will be the most appreciated it's ever been. So that's the first reason why I think we have to talk about this. But the second reason, and the one that I think is actually more important, because it speaks directly to our hearts as followers and lovers of Jesus, is that we can give and talk about generosity, even in this current climate, because we can trust that our Father's promises are true. Now, what do I mean by this? What do I mean by we can be generous people regardless of our situation because we trust our Father? Well, we can give because we trust we will receive. The promise of Jesus given in Luke is that if you give, it will be given to you. And the promises of the Father in Proverbs is that Anyone who is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Therefore, our promise from our Father is that provision will be there if we have a generous heart. 
And you might be sat there thinking that I'm preaching this, the prosperity gospel, but I'm not. Because what I'm not saying is that you give for a turn. Nay, Jesus is not a gambling slot machine that if you give enough, eventually you'll hit the jackpot. Hey, that might happen. But what actually I'm saying is that the Father constantly and consistently repeats the promise that those who give with a generous heart will never be lacking. And then, having promised this constantly and consistently, the Father constantly and consistently delivers on that promise. Now, I want to share another quick story. I love stories. I think they bring everything to life. But this story is uh, about a guy named George Muller. Now, you probably know it, but he was this amazing Christian guy that set up loads of orphanages around Bristol, which is pretty close to where I grew up. Uh, so the story goes that early one morning, one of Muller's orphans was playing in his garden when he took her by the hand and he said, come, see what our father will do. And he led her into a long dining room. There were plates and cups and bowls on the table, but everything was empty. There was no food in the larder and no money to supply the need. And so the rest of the children were stood, lined, waiting for breakfast. And so Muller said, children, you know we must be in time for school. And then lifting his hand, he prayed, dear father, we thank thee for what thou art going to give us to eat. And according to the account, a knock was then heard at the door. The baker stood there. Mr. Muller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast, and the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at two o'clock and baked some fresh bread and have bought it. Muller thanked the baker and praised God for his care. Children, he said, we not only have bread, but the rare treat of fresh bread. And then almost immediately, there came a second knock at the door. This time, it was the milkman who announced that his milk cart had, be, had broken down outside the orphanage and he would like to give children his cans of fresh milk so he could empty his wagon and repair it. And this story is just one of so many that proves God's faithfulness. And Muller never prayed in that moment for the jackpot. Nay, he prayed for the provision of a father for his children and God delivered. So why is it important that we trust the father because we see in other people's lives that we definitely can. But why is it important that you, me, anyone, trust God through our generosity? It's because generosity is an act of defiance against the idol of self-reliance. Let me repeat that. Generosity is an act of defiance against the idol of self-reliance. You see, the idol of self-reliance rejects trusting the Father and says, no, I don't need your provision because I've got enough of my own. And sisters and brothers, that is such a dangerous road to slip down. Because when we start saying, no, Father, I don't need your provision because I'm doing just fine on my own, that might start out as truth. You might have enough money to pay your bills for that month. But it can so easily spiral into or just work harder and, and provide enough, but then you end up struggling along and just to make it along, you're struggling. But no, that is not the life the Father wants for you. He wants to bring a full life. And so a way to ensure that I never worship the idol of self-reliance is to give generously. 
Because generosity is the posture of a person who knows they will be provided for. And when I trust that God will take care of everything, I can be generous because I know that I won't lack. And therefore, when we trust we won't lack, we can take up a posture of generosity. And this posture starts as soon as you choose. You don't have to wait. But, and really, I'm talking specifically to the downloaders and the students here, don't let it get too late to start giving generously. Because there's a lie that you can tell yourself, and I know that I've wrestled with making sure I don't tell myself this, which is the lie of when. When I have more disposable income, I'll give. When I've got set money coming in, I'll give. Because the lie says, I'll give when I feel generous. But the problem with that is that never comes. It's never easy to start living a life of radical generosity. So start giving now. And not just giving out of charity, but out of an overflow of generosity. And what's amazing is that when you hear stories of people who give insanely generously, which I'm about to tell you is kind of one final story to wrap up this whole thing, uh, but these people, you can almost always track their giving back to small acts of generosity that allowed them to take up a posture of generosity that meant they trusted the Father would provide, and then they knew they could give generously. So, the final story about radical generosity that rallied against that idol of self-reliance is about a man called Hudson Taylor. So Hudson was a man who felt called by God to go as a missionary to China. And as he shared this with a minister, the minister replied, well, how on earth are you going to fund this? To wit, Hudson replied, well, if God's called me, then I know he will provide me. And in reply, the minister said, well, when you're older and wiser, you'll realize that's not quite how it works. And I love this because Hudson, he was later in life, after five decades of mission in China, he said, I have grown much older, but none the wiser, because I still believe that God will provide. And there were kind of countless stories where Hudson goes through making choices that necessitate a father's provision. But one that I particularly love is this, and this is the final story. So one evening, Hudson was walking home with a single lone crown in his pocket. That was literally all the money he owned in the world. And anyway, as he's walking, a man rushes out and says, Hudson, please will you come and pray for my wife? She's sick, and I think she might die. So, of course, Hudson, good Christian guy, he obliged. And he went into this man's house that was, honestly, it was, it was a hovel. This man was incredibly poor. But Hudson looks in, and he sees, he sees children everywhere. And in the, on the bed in the corner is this man's wife, and she's really sick. And the man says, look, please, if there's anything you can do for this woman, please do it. So Hudson stoops down and then says, look, you can trust God. And as he begins to pray the Lord's Prayer, the thought suddenly pops into his head, I have to give them this half a crown in my pocket. And he's kind of wrestling with this, because it's like if you had a 50-pound note in your pocket, you're like, I can't give that away. That's all my money. But if it was like two 20s and a tenner, you're like, you know, I could give 30 pounds. I've still got 20 quid in my pocket. I can live on that, at least for a while. 
So anyway, Hudson is kind of praying, he's wrestling, and he's praying the Lord's Prayer. And as he gets to the part that says, give us today our daily bread, he stops and he realizes, I'm a hypocrite. I'm telling these people to trust God, but I'll only trust him if I have a half a crown in my pocket. So what he does is he pulls out this half a crown, hands it to the woman and says, this might only seem like a small amount to you, but in giving you this coin, I'm giving you all that I own. And in doing so, you know to be true what I've been saying. God really is a father who provides. And so later on, he kind of finishes up and Hudson returns home and he's, he's having his porridge for his supper, the final meal that he owns. And he prays, dear father, your word promises that he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. Would you not allow my loan to be a long one? Otherwise, I'll have no dinner tomorrow. And with that, he fell to sleep. And so the next morning, Hudson awakes, and there's an envelope through the door. But he, you know, he looks inside, and, and there's the postmark, but it's all smudged by the rain. So he's no idea who it's from. But he looks inside, and he pulls out a gold coin, half a sovereign, which was worth four times what he had given away the night before. And the point of this story isn't, if you give God 10 pounds, he'll give you back 100. The point is, he's trustworthy. The point is, he is trustworthy. And we can give because we know we don't have to be self-reliant. We can trust that we are provided for. So sisters and brothers, let me leave you with this. Let your trust in the Father's promises be your starting block. Let it recondition the thoughts of your heart. Be a part of the, sol- of the solution with a countercultural take on the idea that we have to look after ourselves first. And let's be a people of God whose rise is not in our standard of living, but in our standard of giving. And let your generosity be an act of defiance against the idol of self-reliance. Amen.